You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. One of the things that I have found as I've done this podcast over the past few years is that people often get left by the wayside in history through no fault of their own. They don't write books about their deeds, or the facts simply get lost to time and events. As you can imagine, this tends to happen the further we go back in time. Today on the Explorers podcast, we are going to take a look at one of these explorers, a man who had some significant achievements in his lifetime, but who most people have never heard of. That man is Diogo Cao, a Portuguese mariner who would explore the western coast of Africa in the early years of the Age of Discovery. He would be the first European to find and explore the great Congo River. His voyages, he had two of them, would help set the stage for other explorers, including Bartolomeu Diaz and Vasco da Gama. This will not be that long of an episode, as we don't know a lot about Diogo Cao or his voyages. No first-hand account of his expeditions exist, and what we have is often contradictory or obscure. It means we'll take in this story from a high-level view. We won't have that day-to-day account like we do on some of our other episodes. What we do have is something more akin to the programs we did on Bartolomeu Diaz and John Cabot. All good stuff, just a little different. Now, before we get going, I want to do some housekeeping, things that I have neglected as of late. First, I want to remind people that we have a website, explorerspodcast.com. On it, I always post links to interesting stuff related to each podcast. This often includes maps and photos and source materials. Second, on the site, there is a donation section. I don't ask for donations much on this podcast, but if you would like to help out and you can spare a few bucks, I appreciate it. The money that I take in from donations and ads pay for things like books and hosting fees, but that's about it. So again, if you want to help out and donate a few dollars, please go to the website, explorerspodcast.com, and do so. Third, with that in mind, I want to publicly say thanks to those who have donated. I try and send a thank you note to everyone who does donate, but I want to make sure I give a shout out to those who have supported us. People such as Brad and Josh, Maria, Javier, and others. Thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate your support. Fourth thing, I want to thank people who have helped me in other ways. Example, I get people sending me notes about how to pronounce words, which, as we have learned, I can be really bad at. I even have one nice supporter who helps me with Spanish pronunciations. I send him words or phrases or names, and he records a proper pronunciation and sends it back to me. I love it that people want to be part of the podcast, and I appreciate the help. Also, I just love it when people write me and offer suggestions and ideas for the show, or just want to say that they like the podcast. All that stuff is great. 
So if you want, go to the website and talk to me. I love it. I should also add, you can do this same thing on our Facebook page and via Twitter. I post most every day on both outlets, often finding some fun historical tidbits relating to recent news, usually exploration in nature. It's fun, so come check us out and engage with me. You can find links to all these pages on our website, or you can just go to facebook.com slash explorerspod for our Facebook page, or our Twitter handle is hashtag explorerspod. Again, come say hi, like us, join with other history nerds. It's fun. And finally, I want to add that one of the best ways that you can help promote the podcast is by giving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcast feed. Giving us a review and writing some nice words, it really can help raise the profile of the podcast, and I would appreciate your help. So that is it for all the begging and explaining and pleading stuff. On to today's episode, Diogo Cal and the Exploration of West Africa. The Age of Discovery is generally identified as the beginning of the early 1400s and extending into the 1600s. Many people sort of look at Christopher Columbus's expedition to the Americas in 1492 as the date that things really get going. And that is a key moment. The unveiling of the Americas was huge. And that was quickly followed by Europeans reaching Asia. Again, a huge moment. The world was changing rapidly. But before Columbus and Vasco da Gama and Ferdinand Magellan, there was an earlier phase of the Age of Discovery, primarily conducted by the Portuguese. This was a push in the 15th century down the west coast of Africa. The focus of today's podcast, Diogo Cal, was part of this early wave of explorers. His work would be critical in establishing a trade route to the Far East, to the lands of China, Japan, and the Spice Islands. So, for today's episode, we will have three things on the agenda. First, we are going to do a brief history on the early years of the Age of Discovery, focusing on the discoveries along the western coast of Africa, especially the work conducted under the guidance of Henry the Navigator, the great Portuguese patron of exploration. We will talk about the reasons for this push, some of the innovations that made it possible, and the actual discoveries of the time. Second, we will look at the ascension of King John II to the throne of Portugal in 1481, and his restarting of the work begun by Henry the Navigator. This then leads us into the bulk of our podcast, talking about the voyages of Diogo Cal. I want to add that you might want to reference a map of Africa, as it could really help with understanding all the places that we will be going in this episode. For your convenience, I have posted a map of Africa on our website, explorerspodcast.com. So, let us start back in Portugal in the early part of the 15th century. The Portuguese were, due to their physical location on the western shore of the Iberian Peninsula, a natural maritime people. Portugal, both as a physical entity and as a trade entity, could not expand east or else come into conflict with the Spanish kingdoms such as Aragon and Castile, or the Moorish kingdoms which occupied North Africa and parts of Spain. Speaking of the Moors, that is a term that I will use to identify the various Muslim kingdoms and rulers that came out of North Africa and had moved into the Iberian Peninsula. For hundreds of years, the Christian kingdoms of Europe, primarily Portugal, Castile, Navarre, Leon, and Aragon, fought to retake the peninsula. This ongoing conflict was called the Reconquista. So, the year is 1415. The Moors still controlled parts of Spain, but Portugal had expelled the invaders from their lands. However, the Portuguese were getting itchy and were looking to somehow take advantage of the waning fortunes of their Muslim enemies. King John I of Portugal would be urged by his advisors, including his 21-year-old son, Prince Henry, to launch a surprise attack on the city of Ceuta, which is located on the African side of the Straits of Gibraltar in modern-day Morocco. The idea was to possess an important port linked to the valuable Saharan trade routes, 
as well as to put a damper on the pirate attacks that originated from the area. The Portuguese would capture Ceuta and Henry would be injured in the fighting, but most importantly, this marks the beginning of the Portuguese Empire. For almost half a century, Prince Henry would be a champion of Portuguese expansion in northern Africa and, more importantly, at least for our story, the western coast of Africa. The coast of Africa was not well known to Europeans at this time, and Portugal eyed these areas for several reasons. One was to get a piece of the West African gold trade, which everyone knew about, but no one really actually knew where the gold came from. Other resources would, in time, include pepper and slaves, both of which came from the African coastal territories in the sub-Saharan region of the continent. And the other reason, as we have heard about in several other episodes, was the spice trade. Spices such as cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg came from the Moluccas, a.k.a. the Spice Islands, somewhere in the Far East. The spices came by ship to the Asian mainland and eventually made their way to Europe. Much of the latter trade was dominated by the Italian city-states, in particular Venice and Genoa. The Portuguese had dreams of going around Africa and finding the Moluccas and establishing an entirely new trade route to these lands. The problem was that no one really knew how big Africa was, or if it could even be rounded. Under the guidance of Henry, who we now call the Navigator, Portuguese ships gradually explored down the western coast of Africa, uncovering new lands as they went. First, there were several groups of Atlantic islands that were found and eventually settled. This included Madeira in 1419, the Azores in 1427, and the Cape Verde Islands in 1456. These discoveries would provide valuable outposts for the Portuguese in the coming decades, both with their explorations to the south and eventually the west. Now, these islands were great to have, but the big move under Henry was down the coast of Africa. In these early years of Henry's work, the furthest south Europeans really knew about was Cape Bojador, about 750 miles down the coast of Africa in modern-day Morocco. Legend said that the waters past the Cape were filled with storms and sea monsters, and no one wanted to sail into such a tempest. Then, in 1434, one of Henry's commanders, Gilles Ennis, would test the waters to the south and become the first person to sail past this point. Slowly but surely, the Portuguese moved further and further down the African coast. In 1443, they reached the Bay of Arguin and built a fort there. A year later, they reached the Senegal River. At this point, the Portuguese had passed the southern edge of the western Sahara Desert. This was important because it effectively circumnavigated the Muslim land-based routes in the western Sahara. Now, Portugal could trade directly with the peoples of the area, with gold and slaves going directly to Portugal instead of overland to Mediterranean ports such as Tunis and Algiers. It would be an economic boon for Portugal. The influx of African gold into the kingdom allowed the Portuguese crown to begin minting their first gold coins. Now, much of this was made possible by maritime innovations, in particular the development of the Caravel in 1451. The Caravel was the first European ship of the era that was built for more than just coastal navigation. The Portuguese drew the design based on medieval Islamic fishing boats, the caravel was light and fast and featured two to four masts with lateen sails, the latter of which allowed a ship to take advantage of the wind, no matter what direction it blew from. This allowed the caravel to not be overwhelmed by strong winds or powerful ocean currents. Also, because the caravel was light and maneuverable, it could sail close to land and even go up rivers, all the while not running aground or getting swept into rocks. In the end, the caravel would be a combination of speed, agility, and power, making it the finest sailing vessel of the time. If the caravel had a limitation, it was its small size. You simply could not store that much cargo in one. But in the 1400s, as the age of discovery was heating up, it was the best ship in the Atlantic for an explorer. Now, Henry the Navigator would die in 1460. 
his ships had, to this point, reached what is present-day Sierra Leone, over 2,000 miles from Portugal. He left a growing economic empire in West Africa, a system built primarily around slaves and gold. Unfortunately for the Portuguese, the death of Prince Henry meant Portuguese exploration would slowly grind to a halt. King Afonso V had supported Henry's work in Africa, but he did not push as hard for its continuation upon Henry's death. Thus, exploration down the African coast was dramatically slower. In the years after Henry's death, Portuguese mariners would reach as far as modern-day Gabon, just past the equator. Instead of exploration, King Afonso focused on fighting the Moors in North Africa in the 1460s, and then he got into war with Castile in 1474. This would be the War of Castilian Succession. The constant fighting slowly put a drag on the Portuguese economy, and the war with Castile threatened Portuguese colonies and trade in Africa. All of this would be resolved with the Treaty of Alcacoves in 1479. The treaty has sort of been described as a victory for Castile on land, but a victory for the Portuguese at sea. The Portuguese renounced their claims to the Castilian throne, but Portugal would solidify their hold on their sub-Sahara empire in Africa, along with all the islands in the Atlantic that they had found. In the end, after nearly 20 years of war, King Afonso and Portugal were tired. The nation's economy was weak, the nobility was disillusioned and corrupt and fractured. Then, in 1481, Afonso V would die, and his son, 26-year-old John, would come to the throne. John II was a very different king than his father. He was an aggressive monarch who overhauled the nation's bureaucracy in a bid to stem corruption and improve the collection of taxes. At the same time, he quickly asserted his power over his discontented nobles. He had no problem cutting off the heads of those who might oppose him. Also, the young king looked back to the work of his great uncle, Henry the Navigator, and saw a golden opportunity. First, there was money to be made from the empire's African holdings, in particular the gold, which came from an area appropriately called the Gold Coast. But there was more. John wanted to find a way to India and to establish a trade empire unlike anything that the world had seen. Almost from the moment that he took to the throne, John II set out to make his plans a reality. He wanted to make Portugal a great empire, and he was not messing around. John's first order of business was to establish a strong, permanent base at the southernmost point of Portuguese influence. In 1482, a dozen ships under the command of Diego Azambuja sailed for Africa. The fleet included 500 soldiers, 100 stonemasons and carpenters, 400 tons of construction materials, as well as provisions, with orders to construct a fort and trading post in the Gulf of Guinea in present-day Ghana. The fortress that they built would be called São Jorge da Minha, or El Minha, and it would be a great success dominating trade in the region for over 150 years. By the way, São Jorge da Minha means St. George of the Mines. The Portuguese thought that the region's gold came from mines, but what they didn't realize was that it was actually sifted from the sandbeds of the Niger and Volta rivers. This latter information wasn't discovered until the early 1800s, when Scottish explorer Mungo Park witnessed the process. And that, my friends, is a hint to listen to the Mungo Park series that we have done, if you haven't done so already. It is one of my favorites. By the way, one of the captains in the fleet that built the fortress at Almina was Bartolomeu Diaz. And there you go. There is another shameless plug for another of our episodes. If you have not listened to the Bartolomeu Diaz podcast, check it out after this, as the two stories really are companion pieces. Anyhow, that brings us to the star of today's podcast, Diogo Cao. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Diogo Cao was born in Vila Real, Portugal, around 1452. He was the illegitimate son of a member of the Portuguese nobility. It was not a great start, but it was a start. By the way, the man's name has been anglicized as Diogo Cam, or Diego Cam. His name, Cal, translates to dog in Portuguese, which means he's Diogo the dog, which is kind of a name that I think would fit well in Game of Thrones. Diogo the dog fights the hound in the mountain in Tormund Giant's Bane. Okay, that's enough. I have ventured into nerddom. Back to the podcast. Not much is known about the early life of Diogo Cal, other than that he would marry and have four children. One source said that he may have gotten acclaim by capturing three Spanish ships. Whether true or not, it is not a stretch to believe that he was involved in naval actions in the war with Castile in the late 1470s. So, in 1482, King John II had dispatched a fleet to construct a fort on the Gold Coast in present-day Ghana. Next, he needed someone to lead an expedition not of colonization, but of exploration. For that, he would turn to Diogo Cao. We do know that while Cao was an illegitimate son of Portuguese nobility, at this time he was not a nobleman. I mean, he was important enough to be given this job, but not important enough to have been ennobled. For this expedition, we don't know how many ships Cao was given. We can probably guess it was small, maybe one or two. I say this because this was an expedition of exploration, and not trade. This would have sort of been like sending out a scouting party to find out what was over the next hill. You don't send every guy you have. You send a small contingent to check things out and then report back. Cal departed from Lisbon in the spring or summer of 1482. We don't know the exact date. He headed south down the African coast. Now, I do want to stop and mention to you that the dates I quote in this podcast are often best guesses. Trying to put together a timeline for Cal and his voyages is maddening because everything is so uncertain. Oftentimes, the sources we use are guessing themselves and I just have to figure out which one makes the most sense. Just know that many of these dates are sketchy, and I do not doubt that you can find things to contradict what I am saying. And that's okay. This stuff is old and obscure. Just know that I'm giving you my best guess. So, Cal likely would have stopped at various Portuguese outposts along the African coast, taking on water and food and supplies as he did. Eventually, he would reach El Minha, which was under construction upon its arrival. Here, he would again take on provisions before continuing down the African coast. The big thing at this point was that Cal was now on his own. There were no more ports or outposts that he could draw on for supplies or for safety. It would not be long before Cal would pass the furthest point south than any European had ever come. This was just south of the equator in present-day Gabon. If you look at a map of the African continent, it pretty much is right after the coastline turns from going east-west to south. At this point, Cal would have been about 4,000 miles from Portugal. Now he was heading into the unknown. The explorer would cross the equator and keep going south. 
Then, sometime in the late summer or early fall of 1482, about five to six hundred miles later, he found something very curious. Even though his ship was many miles from the African coast, the water was fresh. This was a sign of a river, a big river. Cowell headed toward the coast to investigate. What Cowell and his men would find was one of the great rivers of the world, the Congo. The Congo is the second largest river in Africa and the second largest river by discharge volume in the world. At almost 3,000 miles long, it is the ninth longest river in the world and the deepest, with depths of more than 700 feet. For Cowell, the discovery of such a big river was a great find. Big rivers like this often supported many people, and they offered an easy way to sail inland to explore and interact with the inhabitants. This meant trade, which translated into money. At the mouth of the Congo, at a spot called Shark Point, Cow would plant the first of his padro, claiming the lands for Portugal. A padro is a large stone cross inscribed with the coat of arms of Portugal. It is a visible staking of a claim to a region. The Portuguese love to set these things up. The padro that Cow planted at Shark Point still exists to this day, although it is in ruins. Cow sailed up the Congo a short way, where he encountered some natives. Despite the inability to speak with the locals, he traded successfully with them and came to understand that the region was part of the powerful Bakongo realm and that a great king was further upriver. Now, on this voyage, Cow had brought along four North Africans, probably Christian slaves. He left these four with the locals with instructions to go and meet with the Bakongo king. A powerful inland kingdom like this intrigued Cow and the Portuguese. Some wondered if this was perhaps the famed realm of Prester John. Now, we have talked about Prester John in other episodes of Explorers, but I want to give a quick review here. Prester John was originally believed to be a king who ruled a Christian land in the Orient. Some said India, some said China, some said the Middle East. This went on for hundreds of years, and as Europeans returned from Asia, and no Prester John was found, people began to speculate that the kingdom was actually in Africa. King John was infatuated with the idea of finding this mythical kingdom, and he had made it part of the mission of his explorers to look for signs of the man and his realm. So, when Diego Cal discovered a great river leading to a mighty inland kingdom, you can imagine that everyone jumped at the idea that this may be the way to Prester John's realm. Anyhow, Cal stayed on the Congo for a time, weeks, maybe even months, but his diplomats did not return. He decided to depart and head further south down the coast, his intention to return to the Congo and pick up his ambassadors on his return voyage. Thus, south down the African coast, Cal went. The expedition would reach Cabo de Saint Maria or Cape St. Mary, which is located in present-day Angola, about 80 miles south of Benguala. The Portuguese called the area Montenegro due to the black granite mountain that could be seen from the coast. It was here that Cal planted a second padro. Cal was now over 5,000 miles from his native Portugal, way further than anyone had ever gone, a remarkable feat. But as you can imagine, Cal's resources were likely strained, and after being so long at sea, his men were probably facing health issues. Here, Cal decided it was time to turn around. The expedition returned north, entering the Congo River, intent on gathering up the ambassadors who had gone inland to greet the powerful Bakongo king. However, Cal would find no ambassadors waiting for him. Upset that his people had not returned, Cal seized four natives as hostages. He made it known to the locals that he would return in 15 months and that the hostages would be given back when he had his own people. Not much is known about Cal's return voyage, but he would finally get back to Lisbon in early 1484. On the return voyage, I have read some sources say that he would discover the island of Anoban, about 220 miles off the coast of Equatorial Guinea and the Gulf of Guinea. However, that is false, as the island was actually found by the Portuguese in 1474. Back in Portugal, King John was pleased with the reports brought back by Cal. 
The Congo River showed immense promise for trade, not to mention the possibility of it leading to the realm of Prester John, whom the king was fascinated with. In April of 1484, Diego Cal would be rewarded for his service to the Portuguese crown. He was ennobled and made a knight. Also, he was given an annuity and a coat of arms. The coat of arms featured two padros. Now, Cal had money and titles, and he was arguably the most accomplished Portuguese mariner of his time. The king, however, was not going to let Cal sit around and enjoy the luxuries of his newfound fortunes. John was an aggressive monarch, and he was eager to expand on the latest findings. For that, he had a second voyage organized. Diogo Cal was ordered to return to the Congo and explore further upriver, as well as to continue his explorations down the coast of Africa. Now, let us remember that Cal had taken with him four hostages while in the Congo, and he had brought them back to Portugal. There was one man, called Kakuto, I am probably saying that wrong, who was an important figure in his homeland. He was reportedly very intelligent and quickly learned to speak Portuguese. Cal would bring Kakuto and the other hostages with him for the return voyage. Cal's next expedition would commence late in 1484. Sadly, this voyage, like the first, is lacking in details. Martin Behaim, a German navigator who worked for the Portuguese crown, is sometimes credited as sailing with Cal as a captain of one of his ships, but this claim does not appear to be true. Behaim did sail to West Africa in 1485, but not with Cal. I mention this because sometimes you see it presented as fact, but in reality it was probably not true. Anyhow, Cal headed south to Africa, he appears to have had at least two ships for this expedition. He brought with him goods to barter with the natives, as well as the four Africans he had kidnapped back on the Congo. Cow and his ships would safely reach the Congo River, and the locals would celebrate his return. One of the hostages he had was released, with instructions to go speak with the great king that lived upriver. The messenger was to ask for the return of Cow's original ambassadors. Also, there were promises of gifts for the king, a way to spark trade. Cal then said that while his message was being delivered, his ships would continue down the African coast, but would return in the coming months. Pushing onward, the Portuguese would reach Cape St. Mary, the furthest point south he had reached on his first voyage. Approximately 160 miles later, Cal would erect a new padro, this one at Cabo Negra in modern-day Angola. He would then continue his voyage, eventually reaching Cape Cross, a small headland on the skeleton coast of western Namibia. Here he would erect another padro, there is an inscription on the Padro which reads, quote, In the year 6685, after the creation of the world, in 1485 after the birth of Christ, the brilliant far-sighted King John II of Portugal ordered Diego Cal, knight of his court, to discover this land and to erect this Padro here. End quote. By the way, this Cape Cross Padro still exists today, but in Berlin. A German naval vessel took the monument in 1893. A replica of the Padro stands in place of the original. So, Diego Cal and his men were now 6,000 miles from Portugal. Here at Cape Cross is where historians believe Cal ended his southerly explorations. One of the reasons Cal probably turned around was that he was traveling along the Namib Desert. The Namib Desert runs more than 1,200 miles along the African coast, from Angola through Namibia and into South Africa. It is a very old and very dry desert, and human habitation, even today, is sparse. Also, the coast is plagued by thick fog for half the year. All this made for a land that was dangerous to travel in and one lacking in food and water. So it is not hard to imagine that Cal, his water and food running low, deciding that he had had enough of this desolate coastline and turning around. Next, Cal and his men sailed north and returned to the Congo River. He went upriver, reaching Matadi, about 90 miles from the coast. At this point, the expedition could go no further, 
as the river becomes impassable due to a series of waterfalls and rapids called Yalala Falls. It was here that the men of the fleet carved an inscription on a rock, sort of a makeshift padra. The inscription included a cross and coat of arms. It said, quote, Here arrived the ships of illustrious John II, King of Portugal, Diogo Cao. End quote. Amazingly, this bit of graffiti was not discovered until 1911. Some of our sources say that Cao and his men had interactions with the local king, and that the king ordered Kakudo, the man Cao had captured back in 1483, to go back to Portugal along with several other young men. There they were to learn to read and write and become Christians. The king gave Cao ivory and palm cloth, both items valued highly by the local people. The story of the natives wanting to become Christians may or may not be true. It was not uncommon for people to want to come with explorers such as Cao and learn about the lands these strange people came from. But on the flip side, Europeans loved to make it seem like all these natives wanted to become Christians. You find this all the time. But we don't know for sure. We do know that Kakuto would go back to Portugal, become a Christian, and return to the Congo region a few years later. Also, in case you are wondering, I have no clue what happened to all those other ambassadors that Cao had left on his first voyage. Anyhow, around this time, it was believed that Cao and his men were suffering from illness, likely malaria and it was here that Cao himself fell sick and would eventually die. With the death of the expedition's leader, Cao's ships likely headed home, reaching Portugal in 1486. And so that is it, the life and death of Diogo Cao. The end was a little abrupt, but that is what happened. Diogo Cao would be celebrated in his time, but he would quickly fall into obscurity. I mean, he had found the Congo River, which was great, and he had went really, really far down the African coast, which was really, really cool. But the man would quickly be surpassed by others, Bartolomeu Diaz would actually sail around the southernmost point of Africa in 1488, and Vasco da Gama would reach India a decade later, and then there's the whole discovery of the Americas. As you can see, that would easily push someone like Cal off center stage. Unfortunately, he just didn't have that signature moment to hang his hat onto. He had not discovered America, or reached India, or circumnavigated the globe. There just wasn't anything really cool like that that he could say he had done. However, the man does have some pretty cool stuff that he did do. He had pressed upwards of 1,500 miles further south than anyone had ever gone. This would set the stage for men like Diaz and da Gama, which would lead to the establishment of that direct trade route to the Far East that King John so desired. This in turn would open the door for Portuguese colonization of East Asia, creating a valuable empire that would control outposts and territories from Lisbon to Japan. I've read that the Portuguese trade network would account for one-fifth of the wealth generated by the nation between 1500 and 1800. Of course, the growth of the Portuguese empire in West Africa would also help fuel the slave trade, a human cost that is incalculable. As for Cal's discoveries, we cannot forget the Congo River. That discovery was pretty cool. The size and scope of the Congo would intrigue explorers for centuries. Many speculated that it would link up with the Nile in the north. In the end, Diogo Cal was one of those many lesser explorers, men who would just have been forgotten by history. Some of that is simply because we just don't know much about him, which is frustrating. Now, this is something that I've noted to you in the past. The Portuguese of this era were obsessed with secrecy. They were traders and merchants who did not want to share their secrets. And while the Portuguese were excellent record keepers, many of these records just got lost over time. A massive earthquake, 8.5 to 9.0 in magnitude, struck Lisbon, Portugal in 1755. It was followed by a tsunami. Tens of thousands of people died, and fires ravaged the city. Unfortunately, many of the records of these early explorers were lost in the disaster. So, the records of Diogo Cal and his voyages are gone, but he is not entirely forgotten. 
When looking up information on him, I found that the house he was born in, in Villa Real, Portugal, still exists, and there is a school named after him in the town. And finally, the Portuguese Navy has a destroyer named after the man, the NRP Diogo Cal. Those are just a few of the ways that Cal is remembered in his native land. So that is it, the life of Portuguese explorer Diogo Cal. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 